0: this is Jane Gunn, the corporate peacemaker and author of How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom. And this podcast is about how we can gain a better understanding of some of the aspects of conflict that help us to lead happier and more productive lives. Well, today I'm speaking with Ken Cloak, who is a fellow mediator Uh, And Ken is also the founder and first president of MBB, which stands for Mediators Beyond Borders. Um, And Ken will tell us a little bit more about that in a minute. And Ken is also the author of Conflict Revolution Mediating Evil, War, Injustice, and Terrorism. Wow, Ken, welcome.
1: Thank you very much,
0: Jane. Um, So, Ken, tell us a little bit, Well, firstly, about you and how you come to be doing what you are because you're a mediator, as I am, but you have some very specific interests and areas that you've gone off to work in. Um, So, tell us how you've got there.
1: Well, I began uh, now a little more than 30 years ago when mediation was just beginning, and as a result, Uh, there was a great deal of uh, interest in the possibilities of mediation but not much understanding of what it really was Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I began to work in many different areas Uh, one of those was internationally and so I've worked in about 20 different countries um, in a variety of different ways in with Armenians and Azerbaijanis, with Georgians and Russians and Ukrainians, um, in uh, Mexico and Brazil and Cuba, uh, in a a number of different countries. Mm. And it has um, finally come to dawn on me. It took many years uh, to realize that the problems that we're now facing as a planet can't be solved except through the use of conflict resolution um, uh, processes and methods. Yes. So, uh, there's actually a very profound and deep and shocking way of saying this, uh, which is that the nation state, as a problem-solving institution, is no longer capable of addressing issues like global warming, Mm. climate change, species extinction, Mm. Um, even issues like possible pandemics as a result of bird flu really can't be addressed by individual nation states. At the same time, the United Nations isn't nearly strong enough to be able to handle uh, the kinds of issues that might arise in the event that there were some events like this and so um and in addition the united nations has been kept relatively well, powerless by the nation states that haven't wanted to cede their sovereignty to it
0: yes
1: so what uh, that's the first piece i think is mm-hmm. that just the recognition that the nation state just isn't large enough
0: To do the job. And Ken, do you put the sort of economic problems that we're all experiencing around the world into that um, space as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. The financial crisis uh, that we're facing is global in scope and really can't be addressed using um, adversarial national interests. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. we require is a form of global collaboration uh, in terms of finances. Uh, But another way of saying the same thing which is equally shocking is that um, market principles and capitalism can't solve these problems either. And therefore what we require is a a movement in the direction of increased economic collaboration. Mm -hmm. Uh, This can be seen regionally within the EU, but it can also be seen globally because now nation states themselves are being challenged by the presence of um, a group of traders um, who owe allegiance to no nation state uh, and are interested only really in expanding their profitability. that's how the system has been set up uh, so that we now have approximately two to four trillion dollars that are trade that change hands every day and no one's watching yes. no one's regulating
0: yes
1: so um, when we add to this uh, the idea that military force can't solve these problems and that litigation and the rule of law can't solve these problems. The question that we're left with is what can? Mm. And the answer is mediation, collaborative negotiation, informal problem solving, dialogue, communication, all of the things that we practice as mediators. That's the thing that can solve these problems. Therefore, what we're looking at is a global shift In the direction of what I like to think of as the collaborative arts and sciences. Um, When you ask about the financial system, there's a woman whose name is Eleanor Ostrom who won the 2009 Nobel Prize in Economics for showing, in contrast to orthodox economic principles, that groups of people are completely capable of managing their common uh, economic. Interests in natural uh, resources, Uh, and she's identified eight conditions that are necessary in order for that to happen, Uh, that the group and its purposes are clearly defined, I'm uh, quoting now from her work, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that the costs and benefits are shared equally, decisions are made by consensus, misconduct is monitored. Uh, Sanctions start off very small and escalate only as they're needed. Conflict resolution is fast and fair. The group has authority to manage its own affairs, and relationships with other groups are structured and collaborative. Mm. And out of these, we can see that the majority have to do with conflict resolution and collaboration. So um, in the first instance, we have to recognize that the old system isn't working anymore and is going to uh, reveal its incapacity to solve problems through the increase in the number of conflicts that it generates. So it won't necessarily, a sign won't pop up somewhere that say (laughs) this isn't working. The sign is the conflicts. Yes will arise as a result of it not working, except the system doesn't show up in the conflicts, only individuals, a certain amount of interpretation to see that that's the case. And the second point is, there is something that will work and the thing that will work, and this is why I call it a conflict revolution, uh, is the shift and it is a revolutionary shift from adversarial to collaborative processes,
0: mm. methods, mm. and techniques. Mm. But so, I mean, this is great, Ken, in, in theory, isn't it? So we yes. should should use more collaborative uh, tools and so on, but, but how, where do we begin? How do we begin to do that? And what role specifically do those of us who are trained in mediation skills have in this revolution?
1: Um, the short answer to where we begin where um, that's not very satisfying but what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is top down bottom up and sideways from the inside out and from the outside in so the inside out piece is the fact that um, our neurophysiology um, as human beings has um, uh, is now recognized to reveal two what are called dual pathways. The first is the pathway of adrenaline, and that leads to the fight-or-flight reflex. And the second is the pathway of oxytocin. Both are neurotransmitters. And oxytocin leads to bonding, uh, collaboration, and uh, increased pleasure in social relationships. Mm. And so, in the first instance we have to work on ourselves individually uh, and collectively to defuse the fight-or-flight reflex which Mm. gets us into so much trouble the second thing that we have to do is we have to work globally to build conflict resolution capacity not only in political representatives um, and leaders of nation states, but in communities, so that we begin to shift the culture of conflict. Mm. And I think what the the current Occupy movements that are taking place around the world are pointing out um, is, first of all, that there's a gigantic gap between the 1% who own most of the wealth of the world and the 99% um, who basically uh, take a second position to them. And the second point is, because of the way that we have structured politics, certainly in the United States, uh, the ability of very, very wealthy people to control the political process makes it very difficult for anyone in a position of political power to be courageous enough to take on um, the... Uh, or to challenge the interests of um, the uh, very wealthy in that society. There are many forms of corruption, and this just happens to be one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the difficulty is not that we need to throw out politics, but that politics as it's presently constituted, is another limitation on our ability to solve problems. So what is a revolution that might take place within politics? Uh, And if we think about this, as I tried to do in the book, uh, Conflict Revolution, Mm. we can come up with a series of answers. And what I came up with is what I call a conflict resolution algorithm. Uh, which is based on what works in mediation, what works in collaborative negotiation, what works in dialogue and informal problem solving. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is we bring everybody together who's impacted by the problem. That's the first piece in the algorithm. The second is we shift from debate to dialogue. That is, debates are concerned with um, scoring points, Mm. with winning, but not with learning not Mm -hmm. with solving problems. And what we require now are dialogues and not debates. So what would it look like if instead of the way that um, the uh, current debates take place, either in Parliament or in the Congress of the United States, with two sides facing off against each other and trying to score points against the, the other one, there was a collaborative problem-solving process that brought in experts um, which is a third point. The problems that we're facing today are so complex that the idea that someone like uh, uh, the governor of Texas, uh, Rick Perry, or any of the Republican candidates that we're looking at, or any individual, no matter how brilliant they might happen to be, could conceivably solve these problems um, by themselves just doesn't make any sense. And the problems are escalating both in terms of their timing and in their potential for catastrophic impact.
0: But Ken, do you think there's any awareness in uh, amongst politicians of uh, the concept of collaboration and mediation and how it might help them or, or do they not want yet to know about it?
1: I think the answer is yes to both. Mm -hmm. Um, It depends a little on who we're talking about. Um, Obama, of course, President Obama is quite collaborative in his approach, although he has been extensively criticized within the United States for not having sufficient kind of adversarial um, uh, or advocacy um, skills. uh, So that Uh, That might be true, for example, of him, but it's not the individual people that I'm mostly concerned about. It's how the political systems themselves are set up. And they're set up on the basis of what we know as conflict resolvers uh, is a win-lose outcome process. Mm. That is, they're set up on the basis of power. Uh, And in the best circumstances, they're set up on the basis of rights. But there's always a winner and a loser in power and rights-based contests. So the true task for us, the real revolution, is to turn politics, economics, and society in an interest-based direction and to see that these are not just nice to do. It's not that we're doing them simply because um, we enjoy them more. We're doing them because they're the only methods that are capable of solving this order of problem.
0: Fascinating. Uh, And Ken, so I think you're saying that we have maybe a couple of roles as mediators. Maybe we have a role as role models. We can model what ought to be happening wherever we happen to be going and working. Uh, And perhaps we also have a role... in stimulating dialogue rather than debate about some of these things, and in influencing those that need to be influenced if we happen to get near enough to them.
1: Yes, exactly. So uh, what I think we need to be doing is uh, reaching, uh, uh, on a multi-track basis, Mm. uh, reaching wherever we can reach people, and that includes, of course, people who are in positions of uh, political, economic, or social power but um, it's very difficult to convince someone of something when they are making a lot of money Mm. uh, not being convinced of it. Mm. So the the nature of the system itself has to change and the closer we get to that, the more difficult that will become because there's a great deal of vested interest in this. The advantage of interest-based processes is that they help us work through resistance
0: yes. so and that, so yeah.
1: yes go ahead
0: I was just going to say so there's a lot of resistance in the system at the moment that needs mm-hmm. to be overcome in some way before the interest based approach the collaborative approach will be accepted
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think that's right yeah. but what we're doing now is we are demonstrating through our daily practice as mediators that this stuff works yeah it's actually highly successful.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, uh, for example, I have two friends um, who are involved in creating a mediation project in a women's prison. Mm-hmm. Most of the women in the prison are, fel- in fact, they're all felons. Mm-hmm. Most of them are murderers. Mm-hmm. And they have been incredibly successful in taking this group of women and doing 50 hours of training with them and turning them into some of the best mediators that you have ever seen. And they have stopped riots in the prison. They have stopped murders. They've stopped rapes. They've stopped uh, Mm fistfights. They have brought the women in this prison together uh, based on the idea that we're going to be spending decades, if not our entire lives in here. How do we want to live? Yes. Do we want to be hating each other this entire time, or can we figure out how to live together?
0: Yes.
1: And they have been um, doing something so remarkable and so exciting that the prison system in the entire state of California is now beginning to take notice. That's amazing. So th- things like this have a profound impact.
0: Yes. And actually, we're all in a prison, aren't we? And that prison is called yes. Earth. And we, yes. We need to all work out how to live together on Earth. So it's just a larger example of your Californian prison, I think.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yes. There's nowhere left to go. Yes. We have to sooner or later come to terms with the fact that there is no them and us. Yes. It's just us. And it doesn't matter whose end of the boat is sinking. well, well, let me say it a little bit differently. If we take a look at this in a slightly different way, we say what are the problems that we are now required to solve? Mm. Um, There's the size and density of human populations. Uh, There's CO2 and methane emissions that result in global warming. There's um, nuclear proliferation, the destructive power and availability of advanced military technologies there's species extinctions and the loss of rainforest and woodland, loss of the, the disappearance of drinkable water and arable land. Um, there's increasing resistance to antibiotics and growing costs in medical care, um, increasing numbers of natural catastrophes and severe weather conditions, unregulated economic transactions, etc., um, you know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. We can go on and on on this, mm. and what we can see is that um what takes place in a tiny little corner of the globe that we used to think of as not involving us at all now all of a sudden can can easily have a global impact mm. um there's terrorism there are cycles of revenge and retaliation use of torture and cruelty mm. um there's uh, the incredible impact of poverty um and um Um, the ethnic cleansing sexual trafficking organized crime all of these issues are massive in scope and um, they are genuinely international so individual governments just can't solve them on their own Um, I've watched over several months as We've tried to address uh, some of these problems, particularly in terms of the financial crises that are extremely difficult so far as the Euro is concerned right yeah. now. Yeah. But what is happening in Greece and what's happening in Italy um, is impacting the entire global economy. Mm. Mm. So people in um, small towns in California are going to be impacted uh, by the uh, decisions that are made in Italy directly, immediately impacted, families' lives will be affected by them. So these problems are only going to increase as we go forward into the 21st century. Um, And in order to be able to solve them, we have to increase our capacity um, to work together, to communicate and resolve difficulties. In order to really do that, we have to also address a series of problems. I I think of these as what I call meta sources of chronic conflict. And those are um, social inequality, economic inequity, and political autocracy. Um, And without solutions to those, it will be extremely difficult also to solve these problems. And the one big advantage that we have is that what we are learning, what we are doing in our daily lives as mediators is uh, my phrase for this is it works on a scale free basis, meaning it doesn't matter whether the conflicts that are taking place are between children on a playground mm. or the, or the heads of nation states, they're human beings. And what we are learning are human techniques. Of course, there are lots of cultural differences and lots of opportunities to use diversity um, to create a series of small-scale revolutions, but there is also a very, very large-scale revolution that needs to take place. We have to shift the relationship between self, other, and community. Um, We have to shift attitudes, behaviors, and cultures. and we have to do so at the level of content process and relationship Mm. all of these are going to be essential so how exactly do we do this well i think that um, we begin with where we are Uh, so for me the beginning was the creation of mediators beyond borders which is not the solution to any of these final problems it's simply a way of mobilizing mediators to work internationally and to recognize that they are global citizens and that we have a responsibility for what happens in the rest of the world. So what we're involved in is a fundamental paradigm shift uh, like the paradigm shift from uh, the idea that uh, kings rule by divine right uh, to the idea that um, democracy and elections are the way to select leadership, to a new idea, which is the idea to some extent that isn't being expressed in the Occupy movement, uh, which is there is a possibility to expand the, um, the, this, the scope of collective leadership, of popular leadership. Um, I wrote a book several years ago with John Goldsmith, and the title is The End of Management and the Rise of Organizational Democracy. Um, And there's a chapter in there on what we call ubiquitous leadership. But it's about how do we create democratic organizations? Uh, If you think about this for a moment, management as a technique only works to solve certain kinds of problems. Just like um, military force exists to solve certain kinds of problems, mm. and with certain problems it works quite remarkably well. Mm. If someone is attacking you uh, with guns, uh, you know, uh, uh, and airplanes, military force is one approach that uh, that might be successful, but. At the same time there are all kinds of negative consequences of the use of negative force and there are all sorts of problems that you would never want to use military force to address. For example, your relationship with your spouse.
0: <laughs> yes, not, not often okay. anyway. <laughs>
1: right, so if it doesn't work in your relationship with your spouse if you're not going to sue your spouse and if you're not going to shoot your spouse <laughs> and if you're not going to do any of these other things what are you going to do yeah. you're going to have to sit down and talk about the problems and yes. negotiate solutions yeah. and we're all married to each other on the planet yeah it's the paradigm shift I yeah
0: think. It is. Uh, And uh, and I guess it is, you know, it's something which is you say you've been mediating for 30 years. It's obviously an evolutionary process and, and one that isn't going to happen overnight, but we can all be part of it. And I think that's the exciting thing that you've shown us today is that as mediators, we have the opportunity, a real opportunity now with where the world is to be both mediators and revolutionaries in the sense that we can help to, revolutionize the way people see these problems whether it's at uh, a community level within our own communities, within schools or whether we get involved in, in these problems at a more global level through an organization like Mediators Beyond Borders, but all of us have an opportunity to make a contribution right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
1: think that's right and the contribution can be very large and it can be very small. Yes. Uh, one of the small pieces Uh, and those are the ones that interest me the most, the large pieces I think we can all understand relatively easily. But if we take for example, what happens in political language, we can see that simply the way that politicians talk contains an element of the problem. Mm. Um, They are telling uh, adversarial stories. Mm. And within their adversarial, and of course we know about adversarial stories because we hear them every day in mediation. And we also know how to transform an adversarial story in a direction that is collaborative. We learn how to reframe uh, the demonization and victimization that we hear in people's stories. Mm. We learn how to shift from a kind of learned helplessness, a kind of victim attitude, that assumes that change is impossible, that resolution is impossible, how to move that slowly in the direction of concrete practical agreements that people can live by. Mm. And this is why mediation is such a powerful thing, uh, is that it it gives us the opportunity to address these things. The larger issue, uh, and particularly in terms of politics, the larger issue is the problem of evil. And that's why I talk in the book about mm. um, the problem of mediating evil, war, injustice, and terrorism. Yes. Uh, because these are the we have to be able to come to grips with these things. And that's what I try to do in the book. But the interesting piece for me is that there is a direct connection between the very large and the very small. So that large-scale evil is simply the organization small-scale hatreds yeah. and so if yes. we can begin to approach it on a small scale one by one uh, through our mediations we can have an impact on it that's the bottom up piece and the top-down piece is also to look at how the possibility for evil I, I define the smallest piece of evil in the book as the inability to find the other within the self mm. And this corresponds to, uh, I wrote this several years ago, but it's uh, 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 reinforced by a recent book by Simon Baron Cohen at Cambridge um, on evil, uh, where he describes it as a failure of empathy. But what we can then see is, on a large scale and on a small scale, creating dialogue with others, with the people who are... um, Who we form stereotypes and prejudices about Mm. Uh, defeats those stereotypes and prejudices and allows us to recognize the possibility of some uh, collaboration but it's not the small, the petty collaboration that's based on um, uh, everything that we agree on it's a collaboration that's based on our diversity and our differences on our disagreements, and that's what makes it synergistic and powerful.
0: There's a wonderful book. I don't know if you know this one called *The Dignity of Difference*, which talks about really mm-hmm. the power of us being different. And you know, one of the things that we've done historically is to hate difference and find that a threat, which is where a lot of um, evil and and war and terrorism comes from. Is a fear of the other and a fear of the difference of the other. Um, yes. Yeah so what you're saying is very powerful Mm -hmm. so Ken uh, Ken, as always I'm very inspired by what you say I'm particularly inspired that the message that you're giving us is that everybody who listens to this can find a role if they want to in revolutionising the way we communicate even if it's only within their their family Um, but that's a a piece of the work that you're doing
1: yes that's, that's exactly right yeah. and that's the butterfly effect yeah. and we're beginning to see that um, the important um, one of the most important elements in any social change is the shift in attitude that happens really kind of person by person mm. and we can uh, begin to feel how this takes place as we watch attitudes shift Yes. But in the shifting of attitudes, the media plays an important role, and yet the media does, isn't aware of its role, and it isn't always playing a positive role no. uh, in helping people figure these things out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, have a very, um, we have enormous difficulties that are facing us. But if we ask the question, who exactly is going to be doing this, who exactly is going to be bringing about these changes? Um, the answer is there isn't anyone except for us. Yes. Yes. We're going to have to do it ourselves. It's us. Yes.
0: hmm So, Ken, as always, um, we could talk forever, but you know, we have to bring this call to an end. Do you have one piece of advice or one thought that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Uh, yes. Yes.
1: Um, as opposed to many of the earlier revolutions and change efforts that we've participated in, it's necessary for us to change the way that we change. Mm -hmm. Not only do we have to bring about these changes, we have to change the way that we bring about them. Now, bring them about. Um, And that means beginning, I think, by creating a context of ethics, values, and integrity, of watching our own attitudes, of really uh, listening closely to critics um, and dissidents. It it consists of more subtly altering the ways that people succeed and fail. Mm. So in mediation, for example, a traditional simple measure of success and failure is, did you reach a settlement? Yes. But because for the mediator, it's not, the mediator isn't in charge of the settlement. That Mm. belongs to the parties. Mm. The real test of success and failure for the mediator is, were you able to create choices that didn't exist before this conversation? Yes. Um, And were you able to really make it clear to people Um, what their interests were, Mm. and how their interests might play out, um, either through settlement or not settlement. Mm. And so we have to simultaneously change ourselves, and as you said earlier, model what we want from others, or in Gandhi's phrase, we have to be the change we want to see in the world. And simultaneously, we have to be audacious enough to imagine that what we know works on a human scale can work also globally. Um, and that's pretty audacious. Yes. So there's a final piece of this, I guess, and it's a quotation from the beginning of the book.
0: Right.
1: And the quotation is from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince, The Petit Prince. Yes. Um, and he said, uh, and I don't know that I, I don't have the book in front of me, so I'm giving you a rough on it he said if you want to build a boat don't divide up the tasks and send the men out to cut down trees or gather wood instead teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea <laughs>
0: isn't that it beautiful it's a wonderful quote ken um yes. one of your many but that's very mm. appropriate to finish with i think
1: yeah yeah so we need to learn to yearn Teach people to yearn for the vast and endless sea of community, um, of collaboration, of genuine, deep, profound communication. Yes,
0: Ken, thank you very much for your time. Um, I've enjoyed it enormously and learnt a lot, as always, from you. And I'm sure everybody else who listens will do too. Thank you so much, Ken.
1: Thank you, Jane. It's wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.